Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. This is a conversation with uh, Cesare Romano, who is an expert in international law, particularly human rights law, um, which might sound a little dry, uh, but man, he's a very interesting cat, very uh, full of good stories. He was um, born in Italy, educated all over Europe, and now he teaches at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. Um, but his work takes him all over the world. He, he's like the, I don't know what you would call him. The, uh, the, you know, the last resort for, for some people who find themselves in that nightmare situation of being in prison in a foreign country and, uh, there's nobody to help you. Uh, he helps sometimes when he can and, uh, interesting dude. Uh, we talk a lot about, uh, different cultural, um, conventions and the different legal systems in the u.s and in europe and how that's reflected in the way we we deal with each other on a day-to-day basis anyway hope you enjoy the the episode i just wanted to say hello i haven't uh, done these introductory things for a few episodes because it feels like uh, sometimes i just want to let you get right into it without listening to me droning on about sponsors and whatever's on my mind at the moment um you hear enough of me in the conversations, I'm sure. So uh, anyway, this time I just wanted to drop in briefly, say hello. No big sponsorships to talk about this time other than Shore Design T-shirts. ShoreDesignT-shirts.com. Check them out. They're great. Got a huge uh, order in with them. So we'll have a bunch of different lines of T-shirts uh, ready to go within a week, two weeks maybe. But in any case, check them out. Uh, I've done another podcast with Joe and Duncan. Uh, I'm not sure. We still don't really have a name for it. Old Men in the Snow is one of them. Uh, the Tri Podcast is another one. Um, but in any case, that's up. If you go to my website, chrisryanphd.com, you'll see a tab right now. It's called the Tri Podcast. Click on that, and that links you to each of the different episodes. Because some of them, it, we it's a rotating thing. So we do Joe's, Duncan's mind, Joe's, Duncan's mind. Um, but in any case, they're all archived there on the, the Tri Podcast uh, tab. Uh, briefly, just wanted to thank Daniel Jackson, who helped me out. One of the episodes sounded very, uh, the Ginger Norwood episode was very quiet. And uh, he was able to take the original file and uh, run it through a bunch of different um, manipulations and bring it up so it sounds a lot better. So you might notice that episode may have downloaded twice. If you've subscribed to this podcast on iTunes, you might want to just delete the first one. If you haven't listened to it yet and go with the second one, it'll be a lot easier to hear. So thank you, Daniel Jackson. And uh, that's about it. Um, Mandy, who has been listening to the podcast and sending me emails since way back when, uh, is 
working on uh, lining up sponsors. So uh, that's something we've just been working on for a couple of days now. So if you know anybody who might be interested in sponsoring the podcast, uh, our numbers have have gone through the roof. Where uh, each episode now is at least thirty thousand downloads. Some of them as high as eighty thousand. We're getting about three hundred downloads a month at this point, and it's growing steadily. So, uh, and I think that most of our listeners are probably uh, smart, educated, open-minded, progressive, interesting people who probably have some money to spend. So if you know someone who might be trying to connect with those sorts of people, uh, send me an email. I'll forward it on to Mandy. She can can deal with uh, contacting the, the various potential sponsors. Of course, Good companies, right? I don't want to sponsor anyone who's who's doing bullshit, ripping people off, selling crap, whatever. Um, so uh, I only want to sponsor someone that I'm not ashamed to be sponsoring. So keep that in mind. Anyway, I'll let you get into the, the conversation. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Please keep spreading the word uh, and hope you're enjoying whatever you're doing right now. I get some great emails from people, long-distance truckers, people working artists, people who have the sort of job where you can listen to something like this and keep doing what you're doing. So I really appreciate uh, that you bring us along for the ride. Thanks. Ciao. All right. I'm sitting here in the beautiful Santa Monica apartment of uh, Cesare Romano, who is an international uh, lawyer, teaches here in Los Angeles at uh, Loyola Law School, where I believe my uncle was the... My uncle was some sort of big shot at Loyola Law School. Really? Yeah, yeah. His name's Mike Lightfoot. He's okay. Do you know him? Do no, you, do you know the definitely name? before my time. Yeah, I think this was probably fifteen years ago. Probably there's his oil portrait somewhere. In yeah, the yeah. I'm sure he's a you know a hallowed figure there somewhere. He still, I think he still practices, but in private practice now. And right. he's an interesting guy. He's argued court, um, cases before the Supreme Court, and you know, he's pretty prominent. Uh, I don't think he listens to this podcast, but no. just in case, I'm not going to say anything else. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He's my uncle, after all. He's a very nice guy. Very nice guy. A little dry. Dry sense of humor, you know, all but right. I guess that comes yeah. with, with the corporate lawyering. Okay. All right. Well, he did criminal litigation, I think. Okay. Yeah, and he did... He, one of his most prominent cases was... Something suing the state of California for a guy who had been in prison for 20 years, you know, and it was obviously a miscarriage of justice. And it was one of these precedent setting cases where they were suing for damages and, you know, for miscarriage of justice and all that. Um, But anyway, uh, enough about my uncle. Let's talk about you. You're Italian. You came to you were, you know, one of the great problems with these podcasts is while i'm setting up the mics we have these interesting you're, you're, conversations you start talking before you start recording exactly <laughs> save it for the podcast yeah um so you were talking about how you ended up in new york it involved a woman i believe yeah it's it's all by chance and uh and i really believe that in life the only reason to do things is love um, so, uh, yeah. Um, Said like a true Italian. It is. Totally you, is. Could, you could also say that in a French accent. Yeah. That would work. <laughs> <laughs> it would work the same. But no, you're from Milano originally. Yeah, so I was born and raised in, in Milan, in, in Italy, and between Milan and Vienna in Austria, where family of my mom is. And uh, I did my undergraduate studies in Milan in political science, and focus on international relations. Hmm. Uh, for a brief moment of my life, I decided that I wanted to join the Italian diplomatic service, and I did all of that. But you know, soon enough, I realized that working for a ministry 
of a country that has a government that is questionable was not the call <laughs> in my life yeah. and not the best use of my time on this planet, and I decided to move on. So this is pre-Berlusconi, I guess. Yeah, yeah. this is we're talking about early 1990s. Andreotti. And, exactly. Yeah. Andreotti. Andreotti, yeah. yeah. And then I, uh, I moved to Geneva and to the Graduate Institute of International Studies, uh, which is a small institute that has a very long tradition of preparing the cadre of the major international organizations, and it's also a major um, um, scholarly institution. I got there, I did my master's and a PhD in international law, and um, so this is the work side. So while I was there, I was having a long-distance relationship uh, with a woman. who She was in Milano, and I was living in Geneva. She's Italian. Yes, mm. as well. And um, so we started... Um, our story um, shortly before I left for Switzerland. And after four years of back and forth up and down the Alps, uh, we came to the now what (laughs) moment that every couple faces. Up and down the Alps. You were taking the tunnel? Yeah, actually a train through (laughs) a lot of tunnels. Yeah. (laughs) And we were uh, were on holidays in Portugal and in a cafe, and we were having the now what discussion. Oh, the dreaded now what discussion. Right. And I say, I'm sorry, but, you know, I love you, but I'm not coming to live in Geneva with you because it's boring. And Mm. I say, well, I'm not coming to live with you in Milano because there's nothing for me to do. And what was she doing? She was a journalist. Oh, okay. And uh, so we took an atlas that was there in the in the cafe, and we open it, and we start flipping through it and fingering pages, and the only place we could agree on was New York. So uh, that was the plan, and uh, I... uh, Do you need to... We can pause. There was an alarm just went off in the kitchen. Cesare is is making dinner. As we're podcasting, he's making dinner. Uh, Hard-boiled eggs are being cooled in the sink. All right, the eggs are the eggs are taken care of, and we're back at it. You were talking about you're in a cafe yes. in so in we Portugal. decided that the only place we could agree on was New York, and um, that was the plan. So I uh, applied to NYU to do a, a master uh, there, and but penniless as we were, I got a Fulbright scholarship from the U.S. government, and I also got another scholarship from the Japanese government. Huh just because I read the fine print and I discovered that they were giving money also to people who were not Japanese. Really? Yeah. That's a good quality to have as a lawyer, yes, reading it the is, fine exactly. print. Exactly, reading, yeah. reading the small type. Find the, the loopholes, yeah. yeah. So I, I got both of them, and next year um, we left and we arrived to New York. And um, so originally it was a plan to stay only for nine months. And uh, after six days that I was in New York... I got back home, and Francesca told me that uh, there was a someone who I didn't know called, uh, saying that he wanted to meet me and giving me a meeting in two days in a cafe. And I had no idea who this person was. Mafia. And exactly. It's got to be mafia. It could be anything. It yeah. was a total blind date. And I was so intrigued that, you know, I decided that I had to go. I went, and... I meet this tall, lean gentleman. He introduces himself as the former director of the international programs at the Ford Foundation, which is one of the major philanthropies in the United States, telling me that he just retired from the foundation with a $3 million grant to start a new think tank, and he wanted to do that at NYU. 
And he told me, like, talking with people here at NYU, everyone was telling, wait for this guy to arrive from Europe uh, because he has a lot of interesting ideas and talk to him. Really? Uh, and you were there six weeks and you already had this reputation? No, six days. Six days? Yeah. And so what are these interesting ideas you had? So at, at that time, I was 26, by the way. Uh-huh. So we sat down and he says, so if you had $3 million, and what aspects of international cooperation do you think are going to be the big trend center, setters in for the next And this is, this is what year? 1996. 96. So Bill Clinton's in yeah, office. exactly. And a guy with a lot of money is asking you where, where international cooperation is going. Yeah, where, where the world is going. Right. And, and I say, well, if I had the money, I would... Uh, I thought that the big trend of the future was going to be that we were going to have way more international courts than we had back then. Smoke alarm. That was a first for tangentially speaking. I don't think a smoke alarm has ever gone off before. Right, because you didn't have someone cooking a tortilla while it was I, I don't No, I think that's a first as well. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, so you're, you're sitting so, there in this cafe. The There's this guy. Is, yeah, the yeah. big thing is, uh, is international, international courts. International courts, right. Now, this was before the Hague or after the Hague? So, I don't know what you mean by the Hague. Well, then, the International then, Court of the Hague was established when? I, I so, no the, the, the International Criminal Tribunal Criminal, for the right. former Yugoslavia yeah. was established ah. in 1994. Okay. Right. The International Criminal Court doesn't exist yet and actually was just being in the process of ah, being okay. thought. Right. So I said, this is going to be the big trend and it's going to be a game changer for international relations. And there's very little people out there who understand this. And hmm. everyone sees the single trees, but no one sees the forest. Right. So I say, we have this gap in understanding that I think is crucial and is strategic. Uh, and there is a need for study. And so, you know, we've, at the end of lunch, he opened his jacket, took out an envelope with a $3 million check. He put it on the table and he slid it across the table and he said, well, now you do it. <laughs> what? Yeah. Seriously? And I said, like, what? Is this the way America works? You're just <laughs> off the boat and they throw millions at you to do you, stuff? Some guy, some guy you've never met. Never met. He sits down for lunch and at the end of lunch, he's handing you a check for $3 million. Yeah. What the fuck? He said, like, it uh, is mafia. Exactly. You convinced me. All right. Really? Yes. So I, I, I. Oh, yeah. And you're doing what at NYU at this point? You're in a postdoc LLM. or something? Yeah, no, just a master's at uh, law school. But you've already got your PhD. Yes. So you're I doing will. another master's. Yes. So you're a masochist. But I was doing a master's simply because I wanted to go to New York to be with my girlfriend. Ah, right. It was your student visa thing. So I needed right. to have a okay, visa. Okay, right. You know. So had I had not the relationship, I would have never That's done that way. Incredible. Yeah. Wow. The way things work in life. And um, yeah. so I, I, quote unquote, took the check and say, okay, let's do it. Right. And we created a place which is called the Center on International Cooperation. And, uh, and within the Center on International Cooperation, my charge was to do a project uh, to study international courts and tribunals. And I launched it. It's called the Project on International Courts and Tribunals. And I did it for 10 years. And, of course, like, you know, after that, things are going. And, of course, the money was out pretty soon. But, we know, by then the project had been established. So we got um, grants from many other foundations, from the Norwegian government, Swedish government, British government. Mm. And, um, and it went, kept going for a good uh, 10 years. 
Sweet. And indeed, it never... And this was all in New York. You were in New and York. this was all in New yeah. York. And in a way, it never ended. So the research that I started back in 1996, I think it came to completion only yesterday. Yesterday? Yesterday. Literally yesterday. Yes. Literally yesterday. Because yesterday was wow. my birthday. Oh, congratulations. Thank You're you. an Aquarius. Yes, me I am. Me too, brother. Adventurous. Yeah, yes. you meet Darwin a lot and of Lincoln. Things. Exactly. <laughs> and Charles Lindbergh. <laughs> Free thinkers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And... Um, and yesterday I got this in the mail. Can I show you? Sure, sure. All right. So Cesare is going Cesare. Wait, where do we put this? Cesare, Cesare, Cesare. Cesare. Okay, sorry. Oh, look at the, the Oxford Handbook of International Adjudication and the first author edited by Cesare Romano. There you are. Man, that is a hefty tome. Yes, it's... Uh, Oxford uh, University Press. It's 1,100-page uh, brick, but I say that the project came to completion because this is finally the end point of the research that I started back in 1996. Well done. And uh, so for me, it's after I finish, after, with this, I have nothing else to say on the topic, and I need to move on to something else. I hear you. I am so tired of talking about sex and monkey balls and stuff. It's like, I wrote a damn book. Go read the book. You want right, to hear read about the book. I have nothing else to say. Yeah. Really. Okay, who's Anne-Marie Slaughter? I know her name, but I don't remember Anne-Marie Slaughter is, well, she has done many things. She's a professor of international relations. She has been the dean of the Woodrow Wilson School of International Affairs at Princeton. At Princeton. Okay, that's She has been yeah. uh, in the first Obama administration. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, a State okay. Department as the Director of Policy Planning. Right. And now she is at the one of the big think tanks and foundations in, right. in Washington, D.C. that does. Well, the reason I asked uh, is that she wrote a blurb for the book saying that the, this handbook marks a milestone in the evolution of international courts and tribunals, transforming a field devoted to the careful documentation and analysis of individual institutions into a rich tapestry of cross-cutting themes and issues. An indispensable reference book for lawyers, political scientists, sociologists, and legal philosophers. Wow. Well done, man. That is That is... Now you can die, right? No, I can this die. is basically like you write a book like this, and this will be in law schools all over the world, I imagine. Uh, I don't think in law schools because this uh, this pretty advanced stuff. But uh, since last year, I have appointments also at the University of Oslo and the University of Copenhagen. So, uh, both in both cases, both the Danish government and the Norwegian government have decided to create centers of advanced research on international courts mm. at those universities. And part of my appointment is that I have to go and teach there every summer to their doctoral students who summer. do advance. Yeah, that's it's nice. Good, yeah. Better than <laughs> you don't, winter. You don't want to go you in the winter. winter. Yeah, no, no. I thought there might be some mystique about the north in winter, but just for a couple of days. Yeah, you go see the northern lights, <laughs> right, have a sauna, it. and get the that's hell out it. of there. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, that's my, that's my summer um, thing. And, but the, the good thing is that they have doctoral students who are focusing on this and uh, – and for me, it's a chance to be in a room with some very smart and young people who have brilliant ideas, and yeah. and they know what I'm talking about, and I know what they're talking about, so we can bounce things around, which is, I yeah. cannot do that with my regular law school students, because I need to teach them the ABCs before I even get to that level. So the, this, the kind of stuff you're talking about is beyond the scope of your typical law student? Yes, yeah. yes, we're talking about 
doctoral or even postdoctoral students. Right. And is that because law students are they're learning their local law uh, philosophy, whereas what you're talking about yeah. is something that there, there supersedes is, it's, that? It's both a question of um, that they are at the beginning of their studies. So a student who just goes to law school, by definition, knows nothing about law, right? right. Otherwise, they wouldn't go to law school in right. the first place. So they are pretty uh, raw. Right. Uh, and second, it's also, if you want, an issue with the way American law schools are, which are vocational schools. I don't think they are any different from a plumber school or an electrician school. <laughs> so they teach, you, they teach you how to do things, yeah. but they don't teach you how to think. Um, right. So, for instance, like I teach the general course of international law, so the big one, uh, introductory one. And I spend at least the first month not talking about international law with my students, but just talking about what is law. Because they have no idea. So, and, and actually, it's not uncommon for a law student to get out of law school and having no idea what law is. And by having no idea, I mean to a, to a deep level, really understanding, you know. Like, so where did law begin? In ancient Greece? Where is, what is, oh, ev- no, law is as old as humanity. All right, so you're talking about law as, as what, as a, a as structure the, of moral? As the rules that govern uh, interaction between human beings. Okay, so then do you, do you locate it in natural law? Do you see uh, like a, an, an ethics, primate ethics? Are you going that far back? Where, no, I don't where think do so. you, what do you What do you tell your students when someone, you say you don't know what law is, and they say, okay, professor, tell me, what is law? What's, what's well, the answer? Well, first of all, the, first uh, I need to deconstruct and undo certain notions that they have in their mind. Right. So for them, very often law, they, they inflate law with statutory law, right. so to say, the law that is in the books. If it's not in the books, it's not law. Right. So what I do is spend a good couple of classes. I give them an assignment. I ask them to go to the movies. I don't tell them why. I say, do me a favor. Suddenly I go to the movies. Then I come back and I ask, what, kind of mo- what movies did you see? And we talk about the movies and all of that. And then, point blank, I ask them, when you went there, was there a line at the, at the ticket office to buy the ticket? And they always say yes. Okay, and describe the experience of being in the line. So we talk about what it means to be in the line. Uh, and I show them that being in the line and not jumping in the line is law. Right. It's not unwritten. Unwritten, customary, but nonetheless important and influences their behavior. Right. And we go through all the scenarios. What happens is someone jumps the, law, the, the, the line. Collective enforcement, individual enforcement. Do you have a different attitude if it's a tiny little woman or it's a 500-pound gorilla? Do you call for the cops? Do the cops care about line jumping? Do you have external enforcement? And I use Florida with stand your ground laws. Yeah, exactly. And I use all of that to kind of illustrate them that law is way more pervasive phenomenon Mm -hmm. than it is than the law that is written in the books that they're trained to think about lawyers. Right. But, you know, the, the, the reason why I do that is because I need to, quote-unquote, convince them that international law is law, right? Because the, the, the problem that I face is always a skepticism of students starting and saying, oh, but international law is not really law. Oh, really? Yeah. Why, why would they say that? Because, they, because of the CNN effect, which is that CNN, CNN needs news when someone does something against the rules. Right. Uh, so for North Korea, you know, shoots a missile when they're not supposed to, that goes in the news. So the, the, the perception that people have 
is that international law is actually violated most of the time by most of the nations without consequences. And you don't think that's true? No. It's my job is to prove them and show them that actually international law is observed by most of the nations most of the time without fuss. Now we're talking about economics? Anything, anything, including human rights. But isn't the United States one of the world's greatest human rights violators? It's not. It's not. It's totally not. But the problem is that every instance where the United States challenges the rules or tries to change the rules, it makes headlines. Because the United States is the United States. always talking about international norms right. and right. Try, and the UN is located here exactly. and blah, and blah, blah. That. So, okay, but let me, let me just challenge you a little bit sure. on this, this question of the United States. Uh, 1980s, the Reagan administration mm-hmm. waging an illegal war in Central America, selling right. missiles to Iran off the books, using that money to fund the illegal war in Central America. Uh, the 60s, uh, assassinating Allende and the CIA uh, taking out uh, Arbenz in Guatemala, who was a duly elected, right. democratically elected uh, president uh, at the behest of the United Fruit Company. Uh, taking out the president, the elected president of Iran uh, at the behest of the British Petroleum Company and putting in the Shah, who then tortured people for 20, 30 years, trained by the United States mm-hmm. in torture techniques. The United States has a very long record of running around the world, of fucking up countries, especially during the Cold War. Yeah, but you know what? And all the time claiming they were defending freedom. Yes. But the interesting thing is that every twist and turn for each of those incidents that you listed, the position of the United States was not. There is no rule that prohibits me from doing that. Or there is a rule, and I choose to violate it. The position of the United States was always, well, let's talk about the rule. The rule doesn't exactly prohibit this, or there is an exception that allows me to do it. The Monroe Doctrine. We can fuck anyone we want in the Western Hemisphere. Now, if if you write the rules... The Monroe Doctrine wasn't we can fuck everyone (laughs) in the Western Hemisphere. The Monroe Doctrine was... Everyone out of the Western Hemisphere. Because it's ours. No, Western Hemisphere is of the people of the Americas. Now, ah. the fact, but you have to think that yeah. when the Monroe Doctrine was articulated, which was 1821, right. the United States wasn't the United States that we know nowadays. Sure. It was a small, weak power. But it, but it was aspiring to be, and the best yes. way to do that and was to say, thing, Napoleon, right. get the fuck out of here. But the funny thing is that they had the balls to articulate the Monroe Doctrine and say, tell essentially to the Europeans out of the Americas when they didn't have the muscle to kick them out. And they relied on the yeah. United Kingdom, well, Great Britain then. You said this was what, 1821? Yeah. When was the Haitian Revolution? Uh, during the Napoleonic Wars. So right. it was like something 1812 or something. Yeah. Right. See, now I think that those two things are, are intimately related. Yes. Right? Because. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the Haitian Revolution was the first revolution uh, that successfully, aside from the American Revolution, of right. course, that successfully kicked the European powers out. Yes. And they were, I mean, it's a bunch of runaway slaves against the Napoleonic right. uh, you know, uh, Empire. And so what that really exposed was the, the inability of the European powers in the early 19th century to extend their forces into the Western Hemisphere. Right. Right? Yep. And so didn't that – and I, I am not a historian, so you mm-hmm. know, I'm, I'm sure I'm talking out of my ass here. But that seems to me to have 
you know, would lead uh, the United States to to make this sort of a claim to say, okay, European you know, nations, you've already, you guys can't even control Haiti. Yeah. So get the hell out of the Western Hemisphere sure. because you can't. You know, you're too you're overextended anyway. Yeah. So. Um Anyway, so so I was I was oh you want to pause pause okay we're going to pause for the tortilla all right so we're talking about the the tortilla is good I just took a picture of you with the tortilla so when people if people go to chrisryanphd.com they'll see the picture of you and the tortilla we are going to eat perfect and um, (laughs) so we're talking about the Monroe Doctrine and the United States is a hypocrite or not was like the whole point was um, so um, yeah actually I was telling my students in class yesterday and being hypocritical is not a crime (laughs) Ah. so yes so you can definitely charge the United States for hypocrisy but you cannot charge the United States for violating international law but didn't the United States write most international law indeed it is so that kind of works out well yeah, them, but you right? know what? At the end of the day, the problem is that the United States is not Belgium, to put it in to put in mildly. Is that when you are the five hundred pound gorilla in the room, you necessarily have to carve for yourself out a little bit of leeway and margin of maneuver that others don't. Um, and I don't think that necessarily undermines the claim that international law is law. Again, if you look at what nations do and say, yeah, you see that all the time. The discussion and the discourse is always about whether the specific acts or actions fall within the realm of the law or outside. Yeah. But it's very rarely a discussion about whether the rules are rules and should be observed or should not. But, okay, that's a, uh, until the Bush administration, I would, I would have agreed with you. Mm-hmm. But I feel like... You know, Guantanamo, yeah. torture, uh, extradition. There, there, look at that. The United States, even the Bush administration, even you know, um, Dick Cheney, I never heard a statement saying, we can torture. Yeah, what they say you, that's not torture. Right. But, but, but under international this, law, that, that is torture. I mean, people wait, wait, were executed wait, wait. in so, World yeah, War II there, for there waterboarding. Is, there is a standard definition of torture that is accepted by everyone. Right. Okay. And waterboarding falls which, which well is, within which that, Which is right? severe uh, uh, physical or mental um, suffering yeah. caused by a state agent for for specific purposes, which is extracting information <laughs> and, and so on. So, sorry. Sorry, I'm banging on the You're table. You're banging on the table. Yeah, I can hear it with the headphones. Right. You can't hear it. But yeah. Right. So, uh, so that is the standard definition of yeah. torture. But the United States, they're engaged in saying, well, the specific actions yeah. don't cross the threshold of being tortured. So but is that it, credible? It doesn't matter. I mean, like, the question is that what is law? It's right. law, it's the norms that regulate the society. And the society constantly shapes them. Yeah. But it shapes them through discussion and disagreement, because disagreement is essential to furthering of law. For the evolution of law. Right, right. So it's... Again, it's it's part of the process, and uh, yes, hypocritical, yes, uh, sometimes disingenuous, yes. Uh, but then again, we shouldn't make the mistake of looking at these instances as evidence of the fact that whatever body of law we are discussing is not law. For instance, what one example mm. I give my students: Does the fact that from time to time people rob banks? Uh, lead you to the conclusion that the rules that say you cannot rob banks is bullshit. No. 
Or, for instance, like... No, but in Italy, the fact that people right. cheat on their taxes leads the yeah, culture to believe the tax yes, laws are bullshit. Of course. Right? Culture matters. But even, for instance, in Los Angeles, I was, I was showing them some statistics from um, law enforcement. If your car gets stolen in Los Angeles, you have only two chances out of ten to ever find it. <laughs> Okay. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's bad. For two reasons. Uh, because, you know, like there are so many other things to go around that yeah. that is a low priority for police. Sure. Does that mean that therefore you can go and steal the car of anyone without consequences? No, it doesn't. Or that is legal because when it happens, people don't get slammed right. for it. No, it's not. So the fact that laws are broken, sir, I agree with you, doesn't mean they're not laws. Right. But... The moral weight behind laws matters in whether or not they're legitimate. The fact, sure. another, I guess, what I'm trying to say is the hypocrisy matters. The 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 drug laws, for example, minimum mandatory sentencing; those are laws. But we know stop and frisk in New York, mm-hmm. right? There's so many examples of this where we know they're. The laws are legitimately passed by Congress, yada, 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 but they're not respected by people because they're not enforced consistently, because anyone who's ever smoked marijuana knows that law, you know, scheduling marijuana along with heroin and methamphetamines is ridiculous, and there is ignorance and racism underlying those laws. So therefore, the, the laws, they are laws, but they're illegitimate. I guess what I'm saying is they're legitimate in a legalistic sense, but they're illegitimate in, on other levels, sure, right? No, uh, moral, I, ethical, I, I, whatever. I can totally agree with you. And if you and were I in th- my class, you would get an A+. Plus. Hey! <laughs> yeah, <you're laughs> Finally, great. I could be a yeah. lawyer. But you, now you see the challenge that I face when, yeah. I, when I get these green students who have no idea what law is and actually right. have some very, very crude ideas yeah. that all of a sudden they have to think about what is law. And, and after all my spiel, you know... I, at the end of the day, I tell them, like, think about law as a software of humanity. Right. Right? It's the series of rules that make all the hardware components yeah. work together and produce a result. And like software, it's full of bugs. And as it's, you say, it's changing. Yeah, it's evolving. It's yeah. constantly changing. Although some things New don't versions come out, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. You know and no, it's got to be updated, yeah. certainly. I mean, you, you, you know, you're talking about when this whole thing happened with you in New York and the $3 million right. and all that. And you were... Uh, ahead of the curve by recognizing how important these international institutions were going to be. I was thinking those were also the very early days of the internet. Yes. Right. Where, you know, this, you were recognizing maybe because of your age, maybe because you'd been having long distance relationships, you know, you're a multinational guy. You were recognizing how important, how this sort of international integration was accelerating. This process was really accelerating, whereas older people might not have even noticed it, you know, because they're focused on their their local reality. Um, Yeah. No, what was I, I, where was I going with that? I have no idea. Well, you know, what we can reconnect is that. I'm still reveling in the fact that I would get an A plus in your class. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait to tell my uncle. (laughs) So, uh, 
So, oh, I, oh, I know where. Sorry yeah, to interrupt yeah. you. I know where I was going because we were talking about how how you know it's evolving and so on. But there are some very deep elements, and I, I, I was sort of leading you toward this earlier when I asked where you locate the origins of law. Right. There's a, a great primatologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's actually a friend of mine. His name's Franz Duval. He's mm-hmm. Dutch. And he's done a lot of work looking at uh, reconciliation behavior among primates, which is very relevant to to law. And um, some recent research he did is fascinating with macaques. I think I've spoken about this before on the podcast, so I'll keep it brief. But he he had uh, two macaques in um, separate cages. And but they could see each other, right? Mm-hmm. And so they, he set up a game where they had different colored beads, and one of the like the blue beads, the macaques could trade for a piece of food. So the blue bead, a piece of cucumber, blue bead, piece of cucumber, and they were both like picking out the blue beads and giving them to the experimenter and getting a piece of cucumber. Everybody's happy, everything's great. Then he starts giving a grape to one of the macaques, and a cucumber continues with the other one. Mm. So they do it a couple of times, and then the, the macaque who's getting the cucumber, like the second time he gets the cucumber, he looks at it, and he sees the other one getting the grape, and he throws it in the face of the experimenter. It's like, wait a minute, you're giving him a grape? No, five minutes ago I was happy with the cucumber, but now I see you're giving him a grape? I want a grape, goddammit, you know? So then they, and then they continue it, and, and he keeps getting more and more agitated, and then the one getting the grape refuses the grape. Right, so you've got social. Like right. what you're talking about social norms and all it's, this. It's a concept of fairness. Fair, exactly. But it's, fairness, he locates yeah. justice in the primate. No, no, no. What he located is fairness, and fairness is a ground concept of justice. Right. Exactly. You know, yeah. it's not justice because yeah. justice is right. a more complex concept. Right. But it's fairness. It's 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 the basic fundamental right. ground rule of yeah. justice. It's very interesting in, in the stuff I've studied in, in prehistory. You've read Sex at Dawn. Yeah. yeah. Said, so I'm you, a big fan you, of You know that yeah. you know, we talk about a social organization and egalitarianism yeah. and how deeply embedded that is in hunter-gatherer societies and how like the the worst thing you can do to become a to, to be respected as a leader is to show any sign of wanting to be a leader. Yeah. And yet now we live in this society that's completely the opposite, where they say, you know, you've got to have the fire in the belly and you've got to have ambition and you've got to, like, want to lead. I, I find that absurd. Which I think it kind of explains why we are constantly picking bad politicians. Yeah, exactly. Because they're <laughs> yeah. egotistical narcissists. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, like, you look at them and you say, who would want to be person like that you you don't have any private life you don't have yeah. anything you have a distorted psyche essentially yeah because that is a you need power for the job right and do i want to be ruled by someone who's but mentally distorted yeah i don't well but apparently we do but we do but but because we we we, we ask them to be inhuman i don't think we do this is the thing, and this is what I'm, I'm working on this book. I always talk yeah. about in the podcast to the point where people write to me and say, stop talking, stop, stop doing podcasts, write your fucking book already. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, all those people who send me those it. emails. <laughs> but uh, seriously, I, I think the problem is that human beings now live in a world that is shaped and determined by corporations, not by human beings. Okay. So... Corporations 
determine that it makes more sense to sell a big bag of potato chips rather than small bags like in Europe, you know? And so what do we do? We buy the big bags and what do we do? We eat them and we get obese and, you know, we get heart disease. And then the corporations say, well, that's great because now we can sell you this crap for your heart disease and we can, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you're European. You and I have both lived in Europe most of our lives, probably. And now we're in the U.S. Does it blow your mind, the fucking commercials for pharmaceuticals here? All the time. It's like it's the civilization thrives on sickness. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, again, but because we are stuck in the trap that we need to grow and growth, it means spending. Growth. Growth. You know, Growth right? is the ideology you know, of the cancer cell. What, what makes or breaks a politician at the end of the day is GDP increase <clears throat> over you know, right. last year. Sure, and if quarterly profits for corporations. Totally. And yeah. the problem is that the way we measure GDP, it measures consumption, but it doesn't measure happiness. Think about Other how, than Bhutan. Right, other than Bhutan, yeah. I know. But think about how the world would be a cool place if all of a sudden politicians were held accountable over whether the people they govern are happy or unhappy, as opposed yeah. to whether they consume or not, right? Yeah, I know. It's, it's complete, And it also it measures consumption, but it doesn't measure the costs of the pollution and yeah. the environmental yeah. degradation so the, the and all these things. The classical example is that, um, you know, it's the... Um, if crime goes up, GDP goes up as well because you need to spend money to repress crime. Sure, prisons. You know, you know, well, guns, that's the drug you know, war. Exactly. I mean, that's that is the drug war. war. Yeah. I mean, it's a moneymaker. Anything that makes people consume and spend, it's a plus, even if it's a social uh, minus. Yeah. You know? Yeah, well, that's that's a huge that's a huge thing. That's a mess. I mean, so so let let's get into so going, going back to right. what we were saying. So um, so after uh, I did that for ten years at NYU, I um, I got an offer from Loyola Law School um, to uh, here in Los Angeles to come to California and teach. Right. And um, it was a time of my life when. Yeah, I was ready to move. By then I had two kids and life in Manhattan was getting tight mm. and, and difficult. And uh, so we came out and we decided to, to move here. So I've been at Loyola for seven years now. And so, you know, over the past 20 years, I've become a major world authority on the law and procedure of international courts and tribunals because of all the work I did. Now, are you a researcher, or do you um, litigate in these courts? Or? So what I was doing is I was doing the scholar work, right. so studying and writing and booing. And one day, I was thinking about that. And and again, um, like everything, there was another woman in my life who gave me the idea. And, uh, and I was thinking, like, well, maybe I can put all this knowledge to some good use. And... Um, so I got on a plane and I flew to um, Ecuador and Colombia and thinking that, well, this is the backyard of the United States, so it's a logical place to start. And I decided to go and find for some cases of human rights violations because I have the knowledge of how to prepare them, to present them before an international jurisdiction. And but I needed to find my cases. So you so you flew to these places without cases no, in mind. Nothing, you just like nothing. show up at just, Bogota. Just, yeah. So I show up at the central <laughs> prison in Quito. Uh huh. Okay, in Ecuador. Yeah. And on a visit. And this was what year? 
This was 2010. Oh, so this is the current uh, government yeah. in, in Ecuador. Right. right. The, the Which Rafael, is relatively pro- progressive, but somewhat corrupt as well. Populist. Populist, yeah. Populist. Yeah, it's a government of the people, but with uh, some um, Hugo Chavez undertones. Right. And some very intense oil issues going yes, on. in yeah. the Amazon. Yeah. And my story is also leading there. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm interested in So that. I'm visiting yeah. this uh, central prison in Quito. And um, just hanging around, really. And uh, <laughs> one of the inmates, yeah. which once you are in a prison in Quito, it's like you know being in a village. There's yeah. no, it's not like in the United States. The people yeah. are in cells. They have orange jumpsuit. No, everyone is just chilling out. And uh, approaches me, and is this black guy, and doesn't speak Spanish. And asked me where I do. He doesn't speak Spanish. No, he doesn't speak Spanish. And, and he's is, black. Yeah. And he's in prison in Quito. And he says, where I speak French. And I say, yes. And so we start talking. And I tell him, tell me your story. How come you're in prison? And the guy tells me an incredible story. He is a refugee. I mean, he is a guy from Guinea in Africa. Yeah. In West Africa. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, bourgeois family, well-to-do. But he, in Guinea, back then and still, there is a military dictatorship. He is a member of a student association that opposes the government and his family as well. Uh, uh, one day, there is a rally of opposition in the capital, Conakry. They all converge on the stadium. At the end of the rally, the army arrives. They close the doors of the stadium, and once they're all locked in, they open fire on the crowd. I remember reading about that. And they do a massacre. And yeah. so during that massacre, he loses mother, father, and two brothers. Oh, my. But he survives. He's arrested, taken to an uh, army barracks, and he's tortured for five days. After five days at night, a um, truck arrives with a lot of alcohol. Soldiers get uh, slammed, you know, and uh, he takes advantage of the situation to break out and flee. He gets out, uh, stops quickly by home, and he sees that there is an arrest warrant nailed on the door of his home, gathers some belongings, and then he walks all the way to Senegal, which the two countries border. He gets in Senegal, where he buys, with some money that he has, a ticket to go to Canada, and a passport, a French passport. Now, it's a fake passport, okay? He boards a flight, but because of strange itineraries, he ends up in Ecuador. In Ecuador, he gets arrested for traveling with a false passport. And he's sentenced to one year of detention. So when I found him, he was eight months into serving his sentencing. And as he tells me his story, he says, like, you're not supposed to be in jail. Because you are a refugee, and under international law, refugees have the right to travel with any documents, mm. no documents, or even false documents. Because you cannot ask someone who's persecuted by their government to go to and obtain yeah, the right, visas, right yeah. and all of that. So that doesn't make any sense. So I left the prison, and I contacted a local organization there, and within two days, we got a petition of habeas corpus filed in a court in Ecuador, and he was out. Um, good, nice. But that was only the beginning of the problems because yeah. then we wanted to bring a case against Ecuador for having imprisoned him with, for no reason. 
because we want to get the principle established that right. refugees have the right to travel with whatever, anything they can get their hands on. But two is that the court released him and they say, well, we gave you back freedom. That's enough. The problem yeah. is that this guy has nothing but the clothes on his back. Yeah. He was in the middle of a foreign country where there's no one from his country. He doesn't knows speak no one. He doesn't speak the language, nothing. Yeah. So within a couple of days, we hooked him up with um, a, an American missionary who's doing work in the Amazon, which incidentally is the same area where Chevron has done the environmental disaster in the right. its area. It's called Lago Agrio. Right. So that Love he has at least a place where to stay, yeah. you know, and he helps the missionary doing medical service to the people. And I went back and I gathered my students and I say, okay, we have something to work on. So you're back in L.A. now. Back in L.A. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, uh, and we presented the petition to the Human Rights Committee, which is the main human, uh, human rights body of the United Nations that supervises the implementation of the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Mm-hmm. Because in the covenant, there is an article that says people who are unjustly detained have a right to be compensated. doesn't say the rate. No, it doesn't say the rate. Of course, that depends on the country. But nonetheless, it's definitely more than simply saying, we gave you back freedom, now go. Um, So in the meantime, after a long time, this we're talking about now three years ago, our poor fellow and friend has uh, been relocated to Canada. Canada has accepted him as a refugee. But now the battle is not only on getting him a minimum compensation, we're talking about a really little amount of money, but more importantly, I want to have his criminal record expunged. Uh-huh. Because while he was doing the interview to be resettled as a refugee, of course, he was talking with the Americans and New Zealand and Australia and so on and so forth. The fact that he had a criminal record was waiting against him. And the criminal record is only from Ecuador, yes. not from... Yes, no, uh, and the criminal record... but. It's due to the fact it's wrong yeah. because he should have never been found guilty of the crime because right. it wasn't a crime because there he had the right. Yeah. So now we are you know, working well, on that. Okay, and now I understand that you have the right as a refugee to travel without documentation or whatever, right. but traveling with false documentation, isn't that still a problem? No. Because like you have the right to remain silent but not to lie, right? No, no. The reality of the thing is that if you don't have a travel document, you cannot enter another country. A refugee is someone who is at fear of being persecuted, right. losing their life right. or being tortured or naming, by their government. They need to get out of the country. So what about like uh, all this horrible stuff going on right now in Africa with uh, anti-homosexuality laws? Oh, yeah. So anyone who is homosexual in Uganda or Nigeria or I don't know the other countries where this is happening, Rwanda, I think. Uh, they, under international law, they have the right to go to the airport and say, well, let me on a plane? that's the difference. Uh, so, and here it's connected to another case that I'm doing, is that there is a discussion, there is a debate whether you are a refugee only if you are persecuted by the government, mm-hmm. but you're not a refugee if you're persecuted by private individuals within the state. Right. So in the case of LGBT, LGBT people, very often persecution comes at the end of local communities which for, you know, they target these individuals right. because they have values that are different from theirs. 
And there the state has a very passive role. They to say they're not encouraging it, but at the same time they're not doing to re- anything to repress it. Right. But in a place like Uganda or Nigeria where there is, there is a, a law, yeah. right, where you can be executed yeah. well, for you know being what? gay. Our beautiful country, the United States, does welcome people like that and recognizes them refugee status right. when they manage to arrive to the United States. Uh, there but are, they can't get here without papers. Uh-huh, and, right. Yeah, so how do you get here? Right. right? So uh, that's complicated. Uh, that's, that's, that's very complicated. So, for instance, one of the cases that I'm doing right now involves a Colombian woman who is a refugee in Ecuador. And mm, there are two million Colombians refugees in Ecuador because they fled the, mostly the, the conflict from the FARC right. uh, and the government there you know, that has been going on for 20 years. However, this woman, she didn't flee that conflict. What she was fleeing from was a very abusive husband. Hmm. That she was in a marriage for 15 years, uh, severely domestically abused, to the point that the husband hired a killer to kill her. So the only way she had to save her life was to get to Ecuador. She got to Ecuador, and, uh, and when she came to the point of having an interview to determine her legal status... She told the story, and Ecuadorian authorities say, well, you are not a refugee because you are fleeing from domestic violence, not right. from state violence. Also, couldn't they argue she could have just gone to a different part of Colombia? She didn't need to leave the country? Well, you know, the fact is that when you have an assassin on your tail, you don't know, you know where yeah. to. Um, so what we, what we are trying to do in this other case, which we are bringing before the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, is that refugee policies needs to take into account the particular vulnerabilities of women in this specific context. Very often women have to flee from violence that is not state-sponsored, but is domestic. Where the state plays a role because yeah. it's not persecuting or punishing those who, you know, assault them and do all of that. Right. But we need to take into specific consideration the vulnerability of women in this context. That's going to be a tough one. Yes. Oh, yes. I it mean, is. I can see the legal complications. I can also see the resistance due to the fact that if you were able to establish that, that would be supremely disruptive on so many different levels. Yes. You know, because a woman, you know, whose husband beats her up could theoretically then go to any Western country. Yeah. But, what, what do you hey, think? But if a case is not the long shot, it's not the interesting. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> no, that's interesting. That's true. What do you think about these cases of uh, Islamic people in London, Paris, Spain, who... Uh, feel that they have the right to continue to practice their cultural. So whether it's uh, genital mutilation or their right. daughters, you know, can't sleep with anyone before they're sure. married, and you know, honor killings and all this kind of stuff. How does that play out? Because then you've got sort of an internal refugee situation. Yeah, no, it's it's complicated. All of that that stems from one of the fundamental problems that you have in human rights discourse, which is the whole debate about cultural relativism. Right. Yeah. Um, and in anthropology as right, well. Right, exactly. So, you, you know, you, you understand that human beings are very different uh, in many regards across the globe, and they have different values. But at the same time, this notion collides with the fundamental uh, 
tenant that human rights are universal and they apply to everyone the same way across the globe. So, so, so do you believe that when f- uh, the French government says uh, headscarves are banned in schools and on the street, is, is that a step in the right direction or the wrong direction uh, from your perspective? Personally, personally, I think that, I mean, I don't know. It's, like, it's that human rights, there are certain human rights that are absolute, that they are non-derogable. So there's no discussion about it. Prohibition of torture. Prohibition of slavery. But there is discussion of both those things. Yeah, but there is discussion about what exactly constitutes torture. Okay, but but the prohibition itself, not even Kim Il-jong in uh, whatever in North Korea says, I can torture anyone I want whenever I want. They don't. Well, they don't say it uh, publicly, but they they say it privately, certainly, and they believe it. Yeah, but, you know, like, uh, you know, if I have to look into what is law and my search of what is law, I have to look into what nations do and say. I can only look at what they do and say. Words are such clumsy things, aren't they? <laughs> yes. I mean, sometimes I feel that, you know, we're at a point uh, in terms of evolution. Right. Uh, last night I was on this podcast called The Ardent, Evolu- uh, the Ardent Atheist. All right. And, and we, you know, we're talking about the, my book and right. blah, blah, blah. But then we got it, uh, talking about religion. And it, I, I kept feeling like using words, it, it becomes so clumsy that it limits... Words limit our our ability to have this conversation because we're talking about things that are far more nuanced and fine grain than words themselves. You know, like torture. Oh, you know, yeah. you can say, well, everyone accepts the fact that torture is wrong, but no one accepts a universal definition of what torture is. No, there is again, there is a universal there is. definition. Fine, but, but the U.S. You know, does it, and they say, oh, that's not no, torture. No, the, the it was prob- forty years. It was when the Japs did it, yeah. but it's not when we do the it. The problem in the universal definition is the universal definition says severe pain or suffering. How do you define pain? How do you define no, severe? The, How the do you define is suffering? That all about yeah. what is severe? Right. Well, it, and then, then I would all the words are, are right. problematic, right? So in class, I, I give them a case that has been decided by the European Court of Human Rights, where this was a, I don't remember, someone from Algeria and Morocco got arrested in France, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, in France it was given the classical, you know, um, 1950s movie that they put the, the harsh light in front of his face and say, say who said it yeah. and why? Right, and or another one where the person was peed on mm. by a policeman, and and the whole question was: Is this torture? And the some final, people pay good money to be peed on by yeah, policemen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some, some some they do, but then they're they're willing. And uh, and and so the conclusion was that yes, if it's not torture, at least it's cruelly inhuman, degrading treatment, because that's the whole notion. The prohibition includes torture and also cruel and human and degrading treatment. Right. They don't say unusual. No. I, I love that unusual in the unusual, U.S. It's, it's, uh, it's cruel and unusual. Like, <laughs> so if we do it to <laughs> everyone, it's no longer prohibited? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so SM practices are not prohibited by international law. Uh, but uh, if you do it for the purpose of extracting a confession, punishing someone, <laughs> right. discriminating, and all of that yeah. by a state agent, then you do have torture. Yeah. So all of this to say that it's, 
yeah, I don't claim that things are straightforward and easy. Uh, but you must run into that a lot at, yeah, in constantly. law, like frustration over the, the lack of precision of language. But it's the essence of it. And that's why you, you have yeah. precedence, right? If, if you didn't have conflict, if we didn't have this constant struggle, the system would be dead. You know, and it wouldn't serve the purposes of the society that it needs to serve. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, we need it. It's, it's the, the bread and butter of, uh, of advocacy and, um, and lawyering. Do you, you know, on, on some level, I imagine the United States is uh, a very interesting place for you in Los Angeles in, in terms of international law. Because one of the things I, I, I learned living in Europe is that in Europe... Uh, to a large extent, less all the time, but to a large extent, countries still have um, an abundance of these unspoken cultural norms. So, like, there is a, a way that Spanish people do things. Mm-hmm. Now, different regions of Spain consider themselves right. different and blah, 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 and of course. But wherever you are in a country like Spain or imagine Italy or Austria or Switzerland, there are, there's a way things are done. There's a time you eat. There's a way you eat. There's a, you know the way you use your silverware and all this kind of stuff. Um, but there's like a collective identity that I think uh, restricts people's behavior in ways that in the United States, because there's so many different cultures and there is all this cultural relativity and, mm-hmm. you know, everyone does things differently. You need legal structures in ways that in Europe you don't, because in Europe, everyone knows you just don't do that. But in the United States, well, there's, you need a law because people don't know you don't just do that because no one knows what an American is or how an American behaves. Hmm. It's not, there's not this historical momentum or precedent that controls people's behavior the way it does in Europe. Maybe. Then again, being a European who has been living in this country for 20 years, I came across a ton of customary rules of American society that I was oblivious to. Mm. that I find myself, you know, from time to time violating them and uh, that I wonder where they come from. Now, for instance, one thing is that I noticed is that Americans have a different conception of personal space than Europeans do. Mm. In Europe, we tend to get closer to people sure. all the time. I scare women all the time exactly. when you I try no to kiss idea. them. Every time you I'm meet them, like, oh, get away and I'm from just me. behind them, and they look, turn around and look at me and say, what you're doing? And yeah. I go like, whoa, I'm pickpocketing <laughs> you, of course. Yeah. <laughs> No, I get that too. I mean, you know, living in Spain, you get in Italy. I'm sure it's the same. You know, you see a sexy woman, you, you look at her. Of course, you look at her. Right. It's like what? Yeah. I'm not going to look at the sunset. I'm not. And that doesn't mean you have to be you ogle her or be no. ridiculous about it. But in the states, it's like whoa. You know, people yeah. can think you're some well, sort actually, of a rapist. I had just a personal uh, incident a couple of days ago that was, uh, you know, of the, of that nature, and I was like, okay. But I, see, you pull out your accent and you get a pass. No, I don't. Uh, what am I going to say? Like, oh, I'm Sp- I am a Spanish. Uh, our guests have arrived. Okay, yep. hold on. We'll pause. All right. So we were talking about you getting into trouble in a cafe uh, no, by no, invading cafe, someone's right. space. No, exactly. Yeah, exactly. About the fact that you, you yeah, that's, uh, again, I'm not sure that there is a big difference between Europe and the United States. I think as every society has its cultural norms and uh, I think, please don't be offended by this, but I think one of the biggest problems in the United States is an oversupply of lawyers. 
I totally agree with so you. So many fucking lawyers looking for something to do, right. and so that creates a litigious uh, society. Yeah. There is a great book that has been written now almost 10 years ago by Robert Kagan. It's entitled American Legalism. Hmm. And it, it's in the book, it's making an interesting case analyzing, comparing Japan, the Netherlands, and the United States about the perverse effects that the tendency that Americans have to fight legally over every comma and detail has on societies. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. There are way too many lawyers. But see, I, I think that this arises from the fact that this country it has been so internationally mixed and the absence of those cultural norms. I mean, for, you know, you know Maybe. what it's like in Europe. You, you go to a, you walk down uh, at the marina. Yeah. There's no fence stopping kids from running and falling into the water. There are no signs saying, oh, you know, we you are know not responsible for your it stupid kids. It has all to do with torts law. Yeah. And that, it's, that's something that, an epiphany that I had the very moment I touched American soil. So I landed at JFK. This is before the $3 million check. Exactly. This was shortly before the $3 million check. I mean, that's got to be the best arrival in America right. story ever. Yeah. And I was like, I was, anyway. Uh, so I landed and I was JFK and uh, I was retrieving my luggage. And I noticed that there was those little yellow things, the triangles that they put uh, there when the floor is wet to let people oh, know that right. the floor is wet. Right. And I... You know, I was looking at it and I was thinking, oh, that's bizarre because you don't have that stuff in Europe. Yeah. You know, you don't have it. And I was thinking about, okay, how come you have this here and you don't have it in Europe? And then, you know, after a while thinking, it just, you know, start clicking and it all boils down to a fundamental perspective between Europe and the United States on torts. So the American perspective is, well, as long as I tell you that there is a danger... And there is a problem. I'm telling an Italian right. not to yeah, not to not speak with his hands. Exactly. <laughs> you can do it. Just don't hit the table. Yeah. You do it, and it's your problem, yeah. right? Right. I'm, I have no more responsibility. I've done everything I could to warn you, and you have taken your decision and yeah. nonetheless walk where you were not supposed to walk. The European approach is, I don't tell you that there is a problem. But I'm going to make sure that the tiles on the floor are made to a specification that has been determined by a German institute and has been tested by a special government uh, department that has been laid and then inspected by an inspector and all of this. So uh-huh. it's, it's preemptive. And that's what Americans complain about European bureaucracy. Right, exactly. I see. So it's like so, it's right. preemptive no, law. Right. Yeah, now, that's an interesting Because point. you preempt, you need less lawyers because there's less stuff to litigate. Right. Because the problem has been Fewer people at slip. the source. Yeah. But at the same time, you have less lawyers, more bureaucrats. More, more bureaucrats. That's in, a very interesting In America, interesting point. you have less preemption. Right. So you have more freedom. But then you need a lot of lawyers to litigate all the mishaps that happen because someone has done something dumb. And, and the same thing applies to the healthcare system. Yeah, exactly. Right? You, you've got a lot of prevention, a lot of, uh, you know, ex- I mean, in Spain, you've got uh, national health care and you've got like exercise classes and yoga sponsored by the government and you know, all this free stuff. 
Uh, whereas in America, they let you get sick and then they charge a fortune to, you know, exactly. not try to cure you. Right. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting. That's a principle you can probably apply across the board looking yeah, at totally. uh, the two approaches to totally. society. So now the question is that which one of the two societies is best served by approach? I don't know that one necessarily comes on top. One, what? The, one, the oh, Ameri- come on. That's because no. you're Italian. Listen, you're afraid to say no, it. I'll that, say it. The European system is fucking better. No, is that because Ameri- you don't get a heart attack but and then have to pay for the drugs but it's less free it's like we as americans we stress freedom what the hell is freedom including freedom to do something stupid yeah okay the europeans they don't care about freedom they want to prevent you from doing something stupid so for the europeans it's solidarity yeah you know the close-knit community is more important yeah the americans are more individualists yeah europeans are more group oriented yeah yeah, although yeah. I think we're we're at a point where freedom is another one of these problematic words. You know, we can oh, add it to oh, torture yeah. and marriage and, you know, monogamy and all these other words. Right. Nobody really knows what they mean. You know, I, I read a thing. Uh, I don't remember where it was, but they were talking about the difference between uh, European. And you can clarify this. The history of European legal system is based upon whether or not you do harm to another person. Whereas the basis of the American legal system, if I'm remembering this correctly, is whether or not you break the law. So you've got, in the United States, you've got helicopters flying around with infrared detection units trying to find people growing marijuana in their house so they can bust them because they're breaking the law. Whereas in Europe, at least in Spain, if you're growing marijuana in your house, nobody gives a shit unless you're bothering your neighbors or, you know, you're walking around with a gun and a million dollars in your pocket and you're you know, becoming a problem. Yeah. So it's, it's a question of, are, is anyone complaining? That's what brings the police as opposed to the police looking for a violation of law. No, it's, I totally, I mean, it's, it's, that's also an important difference, but which, which resonates with this point we're talking about with freedom. Yeah. Right. Cause that's another kind of freedom. If you're not bothering anyone, why shouldn't you be allowed to do whatever the hell you want to do? Right. If you're not doing harm to anyone, then yeah. why should the police give a shit? Yeah. Whereas in America, the land of the free, home of the brave and all that, you aren't free to do that, even if no one's complaining. No. As long as there's a rule. Yeah. And we've got more, you know, as you, you know better than me, a much higher percentage of people uh, of the population in prison than any other society in the okay, advanced absolutely. world. So this question of freedom becomes very problematic. Yeah, another, another instance in where I had to reflect upon the difference between Europe and United States uh, on, on those matters. It happened when I was flying on a small uh, glider in Europe with a friend, and so we were squeezed in the cockpit, and so we were trying to steer our way, and we were on the border between Austria and Hungary, and he was constantly paranoid about checking exactly where he was. And I was like, well, man, what's the deal? I mean, we are up in the air. It's beautiful. Let's <laughs> just enjoy. And he was like, I can't go here. I can't go there. So we landed, and then we had the discussion. And I say, okay, what's the problem? And he pulled out a, a, a navigational chart. Uh-huh. And I say, I'll show you. These are all the areas where I cannot fly. And we were trying to basically needle uh, our way through no-go zones. So restricted airspace? And I say, yeah. And you don't understand, like, the difference between the United States and Europe is that in Europe, the principle is that you cannot fly anywhere mm. other than these here, here, and there. Uh, and in here, the United States, right. is that you can fly everywhere except, other except yeah. than here, here, and there. Yeah. And uh, so, and that's also a very important 
if you want yeah. a difference in approach. Yeah, that's a good point. I have a friend who's Dutch. Uh, lives in Amsterdam, but he lived for 20 years in Spain. I, I knew him there. And uh, I was in Holland one time. And I was walking around Amsterdam, and you know how in Amsterdam everybody's got these big, beautiful windows, clean yeah. windows, and they're always No open. curtains. No curtains. And you walk by and you see everyone having dinner and watching yeah. TV and all that. And I said to him, you know, the Dutch are just so great. Like, the way you guys do things is so wonderful. Everyone's, you know, open. They've got their curtains open. They're free and they're unashamed and everything. And he said, no, no. He said, you don't understand. The reason they have their curtain, no curtains, is that if you have curtains, everyone thinks you're doing something in there. So it's a shame-based... Wait, wait, wait. I have a better story. You yeah. know why there's no curtains in Amsterdam? Why? Oh, it all boils down to the fact that the Dutch are very cheap. <laughs> <laughs> no. So what happens is that at the time of the height uh-huh. of the Dutch, um, you know... Um, the empire? Empire uh-huh. in the 17th century, city of Amsterdam passed a law that was imposing a tax on curtains, on uh-huh. clothes to make curtains. So the people being very cheap, they decided that instead of paying the tax, they were going without curtains because they didn't need them. And, and from there, then it became the habit not to have curtains on your windows, right. which incidentally is also why you have women in windows, you know, in the red light district, uh-huh. you know, it's because only a Dutch could come in, you know, just make the mental leap from right. I'm in my living room without you yeah, know, curtains, yeah. and therefore I'll, I can also pimp myself out. Lack of shame. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if people are going to see me exactly. fucking anyway, right? exactly. well get doesn't paid make for any it. difference. Yeah. I was flying with, uh, recently, I was flying in the U.S. I don't remember where I was going. Uh, I think I was going to New York, and there was this uh, TV show on, it's called The Blacklist. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen this. It's like, you know, torture and all this horrible shit going on, right? And they're talking about terrorists, and. Uh, every once in a while, the sound cut out on, on the show, and I couldn't understand. Oh, I thought it was just some glitch in the the technology or whatever. And then I realized that the sound was cutting out every time an actor said the word bomb. <laughs> no <way. laughs> yeah. So they had like no gone way. through the show and bleeped out the word bomb on but this TV it, show. Just because it was a TV show on an airplane? On an airplane, Exactly. Exactly, because it was some American Airlines flight or whatever. It's like, like, what a strange country that no. is afraid of the word bomb on an airplane. And yet you can, you know, you can show a movie about airplanes crashing. You can, you know, terrorists, right, exactly. whatever. But people dying, but don't, you can't have that word bomb. It's very weird. And like in America, you know, all this, we're talking about the power of words. In America, we've got all the stuff with the N-word and the C-word right. and this word and in Italy, is, are, is, does that happen in Italian? Is no, there... they don't. And actually, I've been Americanizing that every time I'm back in Italy. I'm shocked by <laughs> but what the shit exactly. people say. Exactly. I go like, Whoa, yeah. can you say something like that? You know, well, I mean, I, I'm in favor of you know words being offensive and, and people not wanting to offend other people and so on. But what I, what I don't get is this, pardon me, but it seems legalistic, this way of like, you say the N-word. You know, right. like, sure. do you know who Louis C.K. is, the yeah. comedian? Sure. Well, he, he has this great bit on that. He says, you know, don't say the N-word. You say the N-word, you're making me say nigger in my head. If you want to <laughs> say it, you say it. Don't make me say it, you know? Like, we all know what the N-word means. It's just another signifier for the signifier we're trying. It's right. like, what the fuck is up with that? Yeah, I don't know what that has to do with international law, but... Uh, I don't know, but yeah. we went, uh, you know... So if I... All right, here's, here's the really yeah. important question. If I get in trouble... 
yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Can I call you? Are you the guy to call? Are you, are you like the international It's all depends savior? on what country you are. There's some <laughs> countries that I can do something about, uh-huh. others don't. No, no, it's happened. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if I like show up in Malaysia with uh, a pound yeah. of heroin one in my of suitcase. The cases that, um, once, one of those times where I had a friend in trouble is because um, a friend of a friend got arrested in uh, Dubai. Oh, bad place to get arrested. Bad place to get arrested. Uh, He had less than one gram of hashish in his luggage, which was a leftover because he was a movie director. And he went out in the desert to shoot some shit. And while they were there, he was smoking a joint. In Dubai? Yeah. Oh. And in the desert. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And But he had a good medical reason to do that because he had... Glaucoma. You know, uh, Crohn disease. Uh And so he was doing that as part of his therapy. Right. So when he got to the airport and he was, they searched his luggage on the way out and they found this teeny tiny piece and they slammed it and they sentenced to 10 years for that. So uh, I got a frantic call from a friend of mine who is a movie director and is a friend of his and say, hey, the guy's in jail. Is there anything we can do for him? Uh, to cut a long story short, we got him out after four weeks because the ruler of Dubai won a dog race. So his dog won a dog race. And to celebrate, he decided to pardon some people in jail. And we managed to get his name, the guy's name, on the list of the people that were going to pardon that day. Uh, And that happened only through some major political maneuvering that involved the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs and a couple of diplomats and all of that. But, yeah, so... Uh, if you smoke a joint in Dubai, do call me. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> yeah. you're out of luck. <laughs> I will try very hard not to smoke any joints in Dubai. I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, listen. We're, uh, your guests, our guests, or your guests. I guess I'm our a guest. Guests. Yeah, are arriving shortly. So I guess we should cut this off before uh, people start ringing your doorbell. Thank you for doing this. Well, I, thank you. I, I, I feel like we there's a lot more we could talk about. Maybe yes. we can do a follow up at do some it point. Again. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, man. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about an obligation Running through a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say
take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground 